Okay, Bizet's Carmen. There's a kind of popular view that on its first night uh, at the Opera Comique in Paris in March 1875 that this opera was a disaster. And the view goes on that in deep despair the composer, uh, as it were, sunk into perpetual gloom and inevitably uh, led to his early and untimely death three months later. And while it's certainly true that in the period in which the opera was being rehearsed at the stage at the Opera Comique, both the chorus and to an extent the orchestra made the composer's life difficult, uh, and indeed Bizet was very keenly revising the score in the light of what was happening on the stage. Uh, and it's also true that Prissy Paris, when the opera opened, turned up its nose, uh, its moral nose, at the idea of an opera with a heroine whose morals were certainly no better than they should have been. In fact, actually, the opera was a success. It ran for a thoroughly respectable 36 performances in its first run, and furthermore, this is, I think, a short evidence of its success, it was revived the next season with a further 12 performances. And above all, Bizet's musical peers, who were in the audience for the first night, who included Massenet, Offenbach, Delib, and Gounod, all were hugely enthusiastic. Indeed, during the performance, Gounod was supposed to have complained bitterly that Bizet had stolen the music for Michaela's aria, and is supposed to have exclaimed, that melody is mine, in a rather loud voice. Very quickly, this opera began to travel to Vienna, Brussels, London, St. Petersburg, and across the Atlantic too, to the United States, New York. And to date, I discovered, as I was thinking about what we might talk about today, there have been over 1,000 performances of Carmen at the Met in New York. Other composers in the 19th century loved it too, Tchaikovsky, Wagner, and Brahms, of all people. But then Brahms knew a few things about Zygoyne or gypsies. It's said that Brahms saw the opera 20 times and said that he would, quote, have gone to the ends of the earth to embrace Bizet. Of course, now we can understand the appeal of this opera. Firstly, it's built round a string of utterly beguiling melodies. It has an extraordinarily taut construction, and that even if you know the story, uh, you find yourself still caught up in the sheer drama of the events as they unfold. And above all, it's a drama about those two things which all of us know in some sense or another, desire and death. Maybe we all know about death, and perhaps some of us know about desire, who knows. Um, it's also, of course, uh, an opera that has always been about Spain uh, as much as the heroine of the opera, Carmen the Gypsy, who seduces Don Jose. Spain, I think, as imagined at the end of the 19th century as a place where everything that wasn't possible at home was possible. In other words, you dreamt of Spain, whether you were Chabaret writing Espana, whether you were Bizet writing Carmen, as a place where, you know, all the desires that you couldn't actually fulfill in rather straight-laced Paris were possible. It becomes a kingdom where everything can be done, everything goes. Where you can fall into the waiting arms of a gypsy and so escape the terrible fate of a respectable marriage to a woman like Michaela. Where you don't have to go to the office, but you can hang around outside cigarette factories watching pretty women. You can go to smugglers up in the mountains uh, and above all, uh, you can in the end hope uh, to have led a better life than you would have done in the suburbs of Paris. This is the problem about turning my script. Yeah. Well, anyway, we have a pair of guests to explore uh, Bizet's Carmen. The production that you're going to see is there on screen behind me. Um, uh, would you please uh, welcome in a moment uh, Ryan Wigglesworth, who is the conductor uh, of this evening's performance, last here at Eno conducting Death Left Land at Caligula, and we're also going to hear from Claire Pressland, who's covering the role of Carmen in this production. But first, welcome, please, Ryan Wigglesworth.
Ryan, a, a very simple first question. I mean, an obvious one. Why is it, and this is another statistic I discovered here, that Carmen is in the top five popular operas around the whole world? It's one of the top five most performed operas, too. Um, which damn good. Um, it's... Uh, well, it's a miracle of a score, really. And it's also this, what you alluded to earlier, this, this incredibly tight, dramatic construction, a dramatic journey. Um, it's interesting conducting this piece, and I, I felt this particularly in the first night, that, that it's extremely cleverly thought through as a construction. And in fact, the first half of the opera, the first two acts, um, are rather difficult to to perform, certainly to conduct, because they're very set piecey, which means that you rarely have the feeling that you're just flying. You're, you, you, it's a constant series of set pieces and you're changing gear for each one. Come the third act, the third and the fourth act, once you reach th those, then it just, it sort of burns. <laughs> and, then, and then you're just, you're on this thing and you can't get off. Um, and there's no way of stopping it until, until, until that final, um, F-sharp, unison, at the very end. But that's a, that's a, it's a wonderful sense of, um, of an evolution from those first two acts, when you get the big set, Carmen's big set pieces, the Habanera, Segadia, um, the quintet in, in act two, you know, all of, these, all of these absolute gems, each one is perfect in itself. Um, that's the other thing, which this is another answer to your question. There are very few operas um, which, when one is conducting them, you turn each page and think, oh, my God, thank God it's that number, you know? You turn the next page and think, oh, wonderful, it's that one, you know? There's never a moment when you turn the score and think, oh, well, you know, well, just let's get on to the next one kind of thing. Every single number is a, is a, is a, a miracle, a, perfect, a perfectly formed thing. Wonderful ideas. There's not a single weak idea in the in the in the opera. Um, anyway, we'll talk about the, yeah. uh, musical aspects a bit later on. I think. But. I suggested in, in my opening remarks that this is an opera not really about Spain, but about the idea of Spain. Does that seem? To yeah, make absolutely. Sense? I think it's a totally imaginary. Th I mean, to, the, to take the Habanera as only one. It's, I mean, it's nothing to do with Seville. It's a, it's a Cuban um, musical idea, musical construct. Um, and you quite rightly mentioned Chabrier, but the same would be said of uh, something like Debussy's Iberia. Um, it's, it's a means to a colourful end. <laughs> you know? um, it's more to do with the otherness of, of Spain. And, uh, well, this is also a musical thing which we'll talk about later, but the, the material is divided up in such a way as to, as to uh, highlight the otherness of the, the, the sort of Spanish colouring. Um, but absolutely, I don't think it's a, necessarily a real thing at all. And, and in a sense, the journey dramatically from uh, a crowd and soldiers outside a cigarette factory to that extraordinary final scene in which our expectations are inverted, that the drama that we would expect to see is inside the, uh, the bullring, but actually we're watching the fight outside the bullring. In a sense, that takes us closer and closer to an ever more invented notion of Spain. Yeah, I think absolutely, that's absolutely right. And it's also this business of um, frontiers, isn't it? And, and well, the drama is very interesting because, because there are lots of different types of 
I mean, that, that opening chorus for the soldiers is, is leaning towards a kind of verismo. It's, it's, a, um, it's almost droll um, and rather detached um, in uh, one puts that beside the big Carmen set pieces, which are clearly performances. She is performing a number. But this rather cool, detached, what you might say is referred to as the society's music, um, is, a, is a very different color altogether. And that's much more realistic. That's kind of, um, that would be much truer of Parisian life, I think. I think that would be recognizable. And that's again, well, we'll come back. That's the, the musical journey too, baby. Um, in a way, if you look at the opera from the perspective of Don Jose, um, in the end, it's about the terrifying consequences of desire, what actually desire does to people, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's a very interesting character. I mean, in, in this production, of course, we don't um, have much dialogue at all. It's completely stripped down. Um, just a few little corners left. But... but if one looks at the original dialogue, he has, um, it takes him ages to sing a note, Jose. He talks for a long time. Um, and I, I have to say that's perhaps the only aspect where I miss the dialogue that this character um, is developed and one sees him as a man who has killed before, which is rather important to know that this man is capable of doing that. And killed over a kind of rather simple game of yeah, tennis, too. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So all of that stuff is, is, is worked out in the dialogue, um, which we won't have, but, but it's sort of built into him anyway as a character. Um, but it means that there is this moment which forces him into song. At the mention of his mother, he suddenly has... He has a reason to sing. He has to sing. Um, so... Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a, a extraordinary character. He's extraordinary in the in the in the, in the Merry May, um, the original the story of Carmen, the Prosper Merry May story. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a story of undoing a man who you know we watch him with 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 with, with mesmerised horror, knowing to some extent that we've been where he's been, but we haven't actually followed it through. In the end, we've made up our minds and caught the nine five back to the suburbs. Mm. We haven't gone to the mountains. Well, I think we haven't gone to the corridor. Yeah, perhaps it's true. I mean, apart from the killing, that to say that each stage is sort of recognisable in itself. It's just taken together where it becomes the journey ends up in a place where one couldn't see oneself. But actually, the, um, that sort of jealousy, I think, uh, is recognisable to, 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 to lots of us. In, in, in this production, um, by Calixto Vieto, um, in a sense, it's also perhaps about masculinity uh, uh, and the idea of, of problematic masculinity. You know, these soldiers hanging around who you know, are desperate and are caught between desire and actually violence sometimes. Yes. Both to women and to the physical world around them. Yes. Well, it, what's, um, that's absolutely true. At the same time, this production actually gives us a rather strong Michaela, who traditionally can be seen as a rather weak figure. And in this opening scene with the soldiers and Michaela, um, she can be completely overwhelmed. But, she's, but in this production, and I think this is a, 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 a wonderful... Um, thing that Calixto has done, he's made her rather strong and purposeful. 
so that there's a tension between this overbearing masculinity. There's too much testosterone in the room. And, and, but she's able to sort of stand up to it. And I guess this is perhaps leading on to something else um, altogether. But, the, but this business of Calixto's idea being of late Franco Spain, um, so in the 70s, um, when this business of, I, I mean, it was still absolutely a patriarchal society. I think it was still a crime for um, a, a wife who'd been beaten domestically to run away from home. She was therefore, uh, you know, liable to be arrested. Um, that's it's a it's a it's a pretty grim <laughs> grim setup, and um, and completely unbalanced. So I, I'm guessing um, that that's some aspect of that is lying behind Calixto's production. And, and what also seems to be behind the production is the idea that, that what actually happened at that moment, when the rest of Europe was beginning to rediscover Spain, when it was becoming the destination of choice for literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of holidaymakers from Western Europe, you know, now reasonably wealthy to take their first ever foreign holidays. What, what he's also <laughs> suggesting is that this becomes the price that Spain pays, or that Franco <coughs> makes Spain pay. Mm. Everything becomes tawdry, everything becomes mm. cheap, everything becomes a kind of sense of tourista. Absolutely, a, to a total commodity. And, 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 and that's perfect, I must say, for the, for the fourth act. I mean, the big chorus set pieces in the fourth act are absolutely that, it seems to me. I can't actually sort of divorce them from what Calixto has done now um, in, 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 in my mind's eye, you know, that this, this incredibly sort of over-garish, over-colourful um, um, sense of, 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 of Spain as, as commodity. And we shouldn't give it away, but there's an astonishing coup de théâtre after the crowd have departed for the bullring when we see Escamillo and Carmen, an astonishing moment of theatre. Yes. Which that tawdryness is absolutely there yes. in our face. Yes, absolutely. If you're moved to clap at that point, please please keep it brief, by the way, because it, <laughs> it's quite hard to... We found this on the opening night. It's quite hard to stop at that moment. <laughs> And you miss the beginning of Escamilla, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, one last thing about, about the opera itself. I mean, in the end, this was a piece created for the opera comique. Now, that doesn't suggest necessarily it has to be comic, but there is an element of comedy in this. Uh, Rodney Mills, a, a great opera critic, suggests it is entirely a comedy. Um, I don't think it's quite that, but there is a sense that you have to balance in producing this, the sense of uh, the laughter with the sort of darker, terrifying aspects of the story. Yes, I mean, I, I think, I think uh, that aspect of it was, was rather difficult for many people to take um, during that original run. Um, I mean, there were certain concessions made, I think, for the fact that it was premiered in the opera comique, I mean, for instance, including at all the figure of Michaela, who doesn't appear in, in Mary May's story at all, is a sort of concession to the opera comic tradition that one needs that figure of, that represents home, stability, everything which Carmen does not um, represent. Um, and also, of course, the dialogue. Um, um, but it's true that actually that musically that there is the, the there is a thread running through it a comic thread even in the, when when late on in the fourth act so this ex extraordinary trio for the three women Carmen Mercedes and Frasquita um, and it's and it's this bit of dialogue is is 
played over what could be Offenbach. It seems operetta-ish. Um, and yet what's going on stage is actually rather sinister. And so there's a wonderful sort of sense of disconnect often, I think. That's, that's, that's the genius of the, how the, his use of the comedy. And then the quintet, which is essentially a comic musical piece, comic musical number, it's, um, it's not really comic um, in intent, I mean, in dramatic con content. But that too has the sense of Offenbach, the great writer of those kind of, you know, ensembles. Yeah, absolutely. Offenbach yeah. plus, yeah. I would say. Uh, <laughs> if you're regular attenders of these performances, you'll know we normally have a member of the music staff sitting at the piano who's going to play for whoever's going to sing for us. We have a rare privilege that tonight's music director is Well, don't speak to too soon. Yes. <laughs> there, yeah, yeah. So, Ron, let me let you go to the yeah. piano, and I'd like, if you will, to, uh, everybody else, to welcome uh, Claire Prestland, who is covering the role of Carmen in tonight's production, who's going to sing two uh, pieces that some of you will perhaps be familiar with. Will you please welcome Claire Preston? And Claire, first you're going to sing for us. What a surprise, thank you. <laughs> That's love. 
I suppose that's the best-known number in the opera. What is it, do you think, from the singer's perspective, that makes it absolutely irresistible to have an error? Well, I think, in my opinion, um, it just represents Carmen exactly, exactly what she is. It's an absolute mirror to, to her character. I mean, we start um, before the art. It's the first time we hear her. And it starts with this this ostinato, which is so cheeky. It's like she's already she's got this elastic band with all of the soldiers around her. She's pulling them. Oh, I'm coming to you. Oh no, sorry, actually, not so keen, you know. And then when she does sing, it's this amazing chromatic, these chromatic phrases where whether she's singing in a cynical way towards love or whether she's sort of openly flirting with all that's around her, the, the, the melody it can't help but seduce everyone. And then the, the leap that she has in, in the melody is when she says, that's love or l'amour, you know. This is everything that I'm declaring to you. This is what it's about. It's love. Do you think she's simply just a heartless tart or is there something to be said? <laughs> no, I think... Um, She's a very complex woman, a very complex woman, um, and she's a very exciting woman. She's very clever, she's very spontaneous, um, she's very sexy, she's a very sexy character. Um, but she's smart, she's so smart, and I think that um, she, she paints with, with bold sort of primary colours, the way that the things that she feels are very bold and very strong. Um, but the way that she goes about getting what she wants, and she always gets what she wants, um, she's cheeky because she uses all of these shades and tones in between. Um, when we see her um, after the Habanera, she's, she's had this incident in the cigarette factory with Manuelita. Um, and the way that she reacts is, is it, it's sort of basic, very strong instincts. She scratches her. She doesn't have a quiet word with her and have a chat at the end of their shift at five o'clock, you know, and say, sorry about that, you just upset me, <laughs> you know. She, she, and, then, and then she's in these situations and she's supposed to be thrown into prison and somehow this clever, clever woman ends up seducing the, the soldier that's um, supposed to be imprison, imprisoning her and he goes to prison instead. I mean, what a girl. <laughs> yeah. but if, if, I mean, you're painting a picture of, of, of a kind of almost autonomous post-feminist woman who, you know, demands and gets equality. But there's a sense in this piece in which she, of all the characters, yeah. we were talking about Don Jose being yeah. prisoner of Brazil, but she is trapped too. I mean, and her constant attempt to, I mean, you know, it, she is indeed the bird she's just sung about. Absolutely. Trapped in the cage. Yes, yes, but I think what's very interesting about her is... Um, she she has no roots herself, um, and she's she's desperate to to fly. Like she says, she's desperate to to, to be a bird. Um, but when she feels trapped, um, 
she rejects it or she turns the situation around so that she's once again in, in control. In the quintet, when they're trying to get her to be part of this scam, she's not really very keen to do that. So she turns it, no, I'm going to... Um, have some, some time some time with um, Jose instead. And the same um, at the end of the opera. She, she is in a situation where she's trapped. She's going to die, but she, she deals with it with great dignity. It's never Jose's decision. It's hers. She gives him the ring at the end. Okay, kill me. Go on then. And so she's very smart that even when, yeah. Do you, do you think she ever really loves Don Jose? I don't, I don't think she allows herself to love anyone. I think um, some people don't eat meat. She doesn't fall in love. Do you know what I mean? She, she just, it, she's allergic to it. She won't, and again, she, I don't, this is my opinion, but she, she doesn't put herself in these situations. It sounds like the Marmite situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, I, I wonder too whether you feel that the, the card-telling sequence yeah. is perhaps almost the key. There's a celebrated piece of film that some people may have seen of Maria mm. Callas, who directed Carmen, I think mm. in Hamburg, uh, in the 1960s, in which she talks about how crucial, and then she directs them, and she clearly sees this moment as the pivot on which Carmen's character turns. Do you feel that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Carmen's incredibly superstitious, and she wholeheartedly um, believes in this. Um, I think it may be something that she does once a week or uh, daily, and it may be that the death card has, has come up before, but I think what's very interesting in this scene is that um, it also speaks about Jose's death, and I think that's that's very much a crucial moment for her, where she realises, okay, it's happening now. Death may have come up before; it may not have, but um, but no, this is it's this guy, and this is how it's going to happen. And it's done wonderfully in this production because yeah. while the other two are busy throwing the cards around, you yeah. know, playing games about you know whether yeah. it's going to be a farmer or whether it's going to be a rich <laughs> old man, you know, she she is really engaged with yes. this terrible thing that's going to yeah. happen. Absolutely. You're going to sing again, but first, mm. how how challenging is the role vocally? Um, yeah, you need a, a fair vocal range to to sing Carmen. I mean, she goes down to a sort of bottom A or whatever to a, to a top B, um, and yours. She's on stage a lot. You need a lot of a lot of stamina, and a, and a lot of lot of. She goes through a lot in these. I don't know, three hours, however long the opera is. She goes through a lot. She's playful, she's flirty, she's angry, she's seductive. Um, so it's, yeah. And we now demand that she should be a great singing actress too. Yeah. We want to see Carmen as well as hear her. Yeah, absolutely. You need to have some fire in your belly to do Carmen. <laughs> okay, now what, what are you going to sing next? Um, the Segadilla. Right, thank you. Gone. <laughs> now 
Brand, we've heard in both the two musical examples you've played, Bizet's astonishing gift for melody. What about him as an orchestrator? What about the colours that he finds in the, in the, in, in, in the orchestra? Well, it's a miracle, really. There's, no, there's nothing else quite like it, because it's... Um, for 19th century French music, I mean, I suppose Berlioz would be the closest things in, ter in, in terms of clarity, because it is so super clear the whole time. There's not an ounce of fat on the score anywhere. Um, so every colour is allowed to speak. Um, there's not a lot of um, unnecessary doubling, for instance, in the orchestra. Um, but it just sort of glints. And, and um, yeah, the Berlioz, and I, I would see at the other extreme, there's nothing, again, that sounds quite like it until perhaps the orchestration of uh, sort of mid-Stravinsky even. That, that kind of clarity of attack and of colour um, and simply of orchestral sound. And, and you mentioned Stravinsky, and again, it, it, the kind of extraordinary rhythmic inventiveness of the score perhaps should also lead us further on into Stravinsky too. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just the... There's no other word for it but the, but the sort of... <laughs> Each uh, it, well, the, it's the, the the thinginess of each idea. It, it just is what it is, <laughs> and um, uh, it's interesting talking about the card area actually because the, because the um, this is something actually that Tchaikovsky pointed out. He pointed it out in his Fourth Symphony that there's a huge correspondence that's set up by Bizet um, with between Escamillo's first big set piece and the card aria. And it's very interesting, this, because I, actually, I need to sort of dash to the piano to... You, know, please, to, uh, please. Um, <laughs> does this one work? Yes, it will, it will. Does that work? Yeah. yeah. Um, but so Escamillo's uh, first uh, entrance is... That thing. And then the card aria... Now, the main theme to, to Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony uh, is, um, goes something like... Um, now... Um, what he did, and, he, and, he, and this is not me making it up, he wrote about this in a letter. He took the melodic line of, the, of Escamillo as the first half of his melody, and the second half of the melody is, is the card aria, is Carmen's aria. And he just, um, um, it, rhythmically it has nothing to do with Bizet, but he just takes the sort of, the, the, the chromatic motion of each, and effectively points out that these are the two big moments of fate, mm. you know, that the appearance of Escamillo is the, is the moment at which this thing all goes wrong. You know? um, and, and, and of course, the, the, they're both in F minor. Um, Escamillo and the card aria. Um, so it's interesting that this that this opera, which actually really has no, um, I, it's difficult to say where where Carmen went into musically. The, the, you know, the, the, the operas after it um, uh, owe, owe aspects, but 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 there isn't. There you can't. It's difficult to point to sort of Carmen's. Progeny, you know? Yeah, but it's ironic, isn't it, in terms of French opera, that in fact the two masterpieces 
um, uh, are this and Peleas, and both are dead ends in a way. It's not until we get yeah, to the 20th ab- century, there's a absolutely. small wicker gate in the corner that will lead us absolutely. perhaps to Stravinsky and Janicek. They led into, into, into strange, like, well, there's Tchaikovsky, I think Tchaikovsky owed, owed a, a huge amount, actually, to the... Um, he was obsessed with the fate motif, da 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 da, mm. that happens all the time. Um, he was he was besotted with it. And Brahms, you've talked about Mahler is another one. There's a very another letter. <laughs> a, a, I think a student of Mahler wrote to him saying, "Can I borrow your score of Meistersinger? Because I want to study its orchestration and counterpoint." And Mahler wrote back and said, "I'm not giving you my score of Meistersinger because I think it's poorly orchestrated. I'm <laughs> going to send you Carmen instead. <laughs> sit down, sit down and learn it, my boy." Kind of thing, you know. Um, but it's extraordinary, and Mahler's not a person you would, you would necessarily associate, but he, he conducted this score probably hundreds of times at the, at the uh, Vienna State Opera. Um, so it led into all kinds of funny directions, but it's really the, its legacy, I suppose, in orchestral terms, is this, is this uh, clarity. Well, well, but at another level, what it does is all the things that you expect an opera comic to do. In other words, the score constantly creates music for these characters so that they become musically recognisable. Mm, uh, absolutely. Yeah, well, yeah. They only have to be on the stage for a bar or two and you know exactly who they are. Yeah, absolutely. He's very clever about g- dividing up the musical worlds of the characters. I mean, Jose, for instance... Um, he comes closest, I suppose, to what you would recognise as being um, melodrama. It's, 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 it's melodramatic music. And Michaela sort of borders on that sometimes. Um, Carmen is, has, as we spoke about earlier, she really has her set pieces. She's a performer until the fourth act when, it's sort of, when, it, when all of these mm. boundaries begin to sort of fall over or tumble into each other. Mm. Um, so he's very careful about that. Um, the sort of delineation, and that's also musically. He he sets up um, very symmetrical things in order to subvert them. Um, the overture is is the, probably the most obvious example. Oh, sorry, I need another piano moment. That, so that the, the um, well, I don't need to play the overture. You know, you know how it goes. But um, there, there's lots of different kinds of subversion going on because this just harmonically. So far, so good. And then D major, repeat in D major. A little bit of sidestepping, and then a repeat until we get. Now it's, it's we hear this piece so often that you 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 begin not to see and recognise how bold these harmonic effects are. To to have that plain C major in, in the context of A major is an is a, is a incredibly bold thing to do. But the whole overture is, is extremely symmetrical. You get the Toreador as a sort of central section, and then we have a repeat. But then at the, at the end, it gives the So, and, so and, and where does that come from? I mean, it's part of the overture, but it's as if the whole fabric of the thing has just been ripped open. Mm. He said, I've given you my nice little symmetrical thing, and now I'm going to give you this... <laughs> I'm going to sort of shock the hell out of you. And he does that the whole time throughout the opera. I mean, that's just the most obvious example. I'll go back. 
And last question, because we must ask the audience if they would like to join us, which is this. When you have to choose a version of, 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 of this opera, um, what do you do? Do you decide to open up Bizet's cuts? Um, you decide that you're going to uh, have all the spoken dialogue, or do you go for the composed recitatives that were done in the end for, for the performance uh, in Vienna? What, do you, what decisions do you make? Well, it, it's a mixture of... of, of of decisions, really, because uh, I mean, first of all, one one is responding to um, a production that is up and running. I mean, this production has had a a long life, and it's not a production that is um, that requires the dialogue. So that that was the that question was sort of immediately taken out of the equation. Um, the the actual business of the scores, the state of the scores, is. Um, it's rather complex because there are several editions of the score which claim to be authentic, and I don't buy it for a minute. I mean, I, I just don't think there is such a thing as um, an authentic Carmen. Partly because uh, one, you know, had Bizet lived, I'm, I'm convinced he would have changed things, even though it's a sort of perfect score. But I'm convinced just the person he was meant that he would have been fiddling constantly, I'm sure. And I don't think he attended. Uh, a, a performance after the first one. Pair. Yeah, maybe I'm, maybe yeah. I'm wrong about that, but you know, because he was he he feared it would just be a, a, a failure. But I'm sure things would have been changed, of course, during the rehearsal period, and I'm sure they would have been changed afterwards. Um, and it's just not absolutely clear what was intended because there are some, you know, there are different copies. You know, <laughs> it's a it's a messy business writing an opera. But the powerful, the powerful message seems to be, uh, which is the way you've gone, is that in, in the end, what actually appeared on the first night, in terms of the score, mm. probably represents a considered view of what Bizet thought would work. Oh yes, absolutely. And, and no, therefore, no. to try to open the cuts yeah. in a way is to actually turn your back on the practical man of the theatre, and indeed on two immensely skillful librettists who yes. also knew exactly what they were doing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, my 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 basic approach was not to have any music that Bizet didn't write, <laughs> um, which, of course, this opera was known in the version with Resets for, for basically the first hundred years of its life. Um, and none of the Resets were composed by Bizet, but they were... And, and one has to say, I'm sure there will come a point when these Resets become popular again, because they're not a bad job. I mean, they're, they're very well done, but they're just not by Bizet. Um, and one doesn't really want to hear them. No, I'm, I'm going to make my own little go on. There's something, I think, wonderful about hearing the music emerge from the speech. Yes, There's absolutely, something absolutely. quite extraordinary yeah, uh, that is unique to this piece, yeah. that the Bizet understood exactly how the music yes. grows out yes. of the speech. You know, it's almost, in that sense, the perfect opera comic. Yes, whereas, in fact, with something like Fidelio, it, it perhaps sits yeah. a little uneasy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a much more difficult thing to bring off. Ladies and gentlemen, an opportunity for you to ask our two guests questions. There is the Roby microphone. If you'd like to catch my eye, uh, as a question there. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've done the production before, but um, as you do different productions of Carmen, um, do you like um, stick to a set one, or do you tend to change out just different styles each time you do it? Um, well, I, it, it's very easy to answer that question because this is my first time doing it. So it's my first production, first time with Carmen. Um, so I, I, can't, I can't answer the question. Do you have another question? Yes, just in front. 
Um, I'm Italian, so I come from a background that is a bit different in opera, and we also tend to keep it traditional in the costumes and for the singers. And I was surprised to see that you both very young. Uh, I wonder... <laughs> is everybody very old in the opera? I mean, in... in in Italy, often you, you get uh, so conductors and directors and singers, before they arrive to perform, they, they look much older, I must say. So I was uh, curious to know how they you know, um, choose, uh, and how it's, it's great to see young people already, as a, that through their value, can perform yeah. as soon as possible. I'm just curious we're, we're, to, to we're know. cheaper than older people. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so refreshing. I, I would add to that you're going to have a very exciting evening. <laughs> Be because this is a very young cast, isn't it? Yes. Very absolutely. young cast with a lot of young singers and a lot of young actors. I mean, I think you're going to be in for um, a very exciting evening. You might have to strap yourself into a seatbelt. <laughs> yes. But it's fair to say, Ryan, there is a tradition here in the house of, 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 of people emerging um, uh, at the beginning of careers and early mm -hmm. in their careers, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I'm very grateful because I have a, um, a relationship with the house which is perhaps not one that uh, many conductors have in, the, in that I'm com the composer in residence here. So um, I, and since I'm working also as a conductor, I, I, I'm able to spend time and actually just see how this place works and absorb it and just, I mean, I come and see a lot when I'm even when I'm not working here. Um, I, I mean, I love the I love the house, and I love the, I love the theatre, and I love the tradition of, of 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 theatrically strong operatic performances, and that's this is the home of that. Um, so whilst I'm thinking at the same time about writing my opera and um, biting my nails and you know <laughs> and going through all of that. Um, I'm able. The, the fact that I'm able to work here and perform here is 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 is, is a real privilege, because it just one can just sort of soak it up, and and hope that it um, pays dividends in one's own peace. Um, another question. Do we have another question for anybody? Yes, in the second row. I was going to ask, how do you find the difficulty of singing in opera in English? which was actually composed in French. Do you find that the text is difficult for you to translate the notes and the, and the color of the music into English words? Yeah, it is, it is quite a challenge, actually, um, particularly because if you're used to um, the phrasing of the French text, um, it's just making the choices to put the right stresses on the right English words mm. that are sometimes very, very different to the French score. Um, but it's a very good way to get to know the role in, in English and uh, do a lot of sort of work on that musically. It's, 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 yeah. a, very, it's a very difficult one, this, because yeah. um, Bizet is often very bad at, 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 at stressing in, in the French, in the original. Mm. And he can't make up his mind whether he wants Carmen or Carmen mm. or, you know, all, all of this stuff. And so then becomes the question of, does one try and replicate that in the English or do you, <laughs> do you kind of smooth it out? I mean, it's very interesting, very complex. Um, but um, uh, Chris, Chris Cowell, who uh, um, 
has provided this translation, and and I worked actually quite extensively in the lead up to this, and sort of trying to tweak things and and, and making work. And, it, and it's a fascinating and, and hugely complex and frustrating business because mm. you you never feel like you're getting um, you you can you can never achieve any kind of perfection. Mm. <laughs> but um, the excitement is is being able to actually have a sense of recreating it every time. I mean, you're released from the shackles, in a sense, of the French, but the ultimate aim is to, is to, is to remain faithful, of course. But there's nothing that can, um, in my opinion, there's nothing that can, um, you know, give, 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 there's no way of giving that sense of, you know, hearing your own language, hearing, hearing the language and going straight in without any process of filtering I think is 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 something that needs needs to happen and, and it happens here it's just um, I, I firmly believe in it I'm getting signals that I think the the revelers the party goers about to join us downstairs we've had a wonderfully quiet evening can I thank all of you for being here this evening I think you're going to have a wonderful evening when you go into the house um, but I'd also like to thank on your behalf our two guests Claire Preston and Ryan Wigglesworth thank you both very much <laughs>